Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Tuesday, February 21. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, Cedar Rapids to shut down quarry across from Ellis Harbor. This story is by Marissa Payne and includes a photo of several boats in storage at the Ellis Quarry in Cedar Rapids. The city of Cedar Rapids is moving forward with plans to shut down the storage quarry across from Ellis Harbor by December 31st, an operational change that some residents fear will create logistical hurdles to accessing the space along the Cedar River. Cedar Rapids residents and non-residents may lease space for a fee to keep their trailers and houseboats in the quarry at 2550 Ellis Boulevard Northwest. Harbor stakeholders say it's vital to the harbor's operation as it allows houseboats to be transported to the water with ease. City officials say the quarry is separate from the harbor and that they have no plans to shut down the unique neighborhood where people spend summers. But harbor stakeholders said the logistical challenges of moving their large trailers and houseboats will, in effect, force a segment of users out of the harbor, adversely affecting the nostalgic beauty of the semi-permanent neighborhood. John Hansen, the Harbor Association's city liaison, said those with houseboats on the harbor likely will opt not to return if their houseboats can't be moved with ease. It's essentially <clears throat> eliminating some of the harbor, Hansen said. Jim Koss, who has a boathouse in Ellis Harbor, said he spent his life along the water boating on the Cedar and Mississippi Rivers and now living near Mohawk Park. In his view, a marina needs a quarry where users can store their boats and trailers. Logistics of moving boats down a road sometimes aren't doable, Kaz said. It's a really good spot to put that, and so this is all very unfortunate that there was some security problems that were probably just a handful of people complaining. Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell said in early winter she received emails about break-ins at the quarry. The police department also was getting reports which prompted efforts to address security issues. City officials explored adding cameras, further increasing police patrols, and setting up measures such as a gate or fence to secure the perimeter. For me personally, that's when I began digging into the budget, and that's when I began to see that taking those extra steps was just financially not feasible, O'Donnell said. The Ellis Harbor Association earlier this winter submitted a plan to the city to keep the quarry in operation. The group proposed a master-at-arms to oversee the quarry on a weekly basis and verify all trailers and boats belong there shifting security responsibility to the Harbor Association. Additionally, the association suggested hiking fees for quarry space by 10%. Parks and Recreation Director Hashem Taylor said the city legally could not agree to this proposal and have citizens enforcing the city's rules and regulations and essentially functioning as staff. He said city staff notified the board that their proposal did not address security, management, and fees. The city has added a camera there, Taylor said, but staff estimate it would cost $101,600 to cover the security needs identified at the quarry. In 2022, Taylor said the city received $23,380 from quarry fees. There are 78 spaces total most taken up by 59 Cedar Rapids residents 
and eight non-residents. Last week, when the city shared its plan with the Harbor Board, members requested an opportunity to submit another proposal to keep the quarry's operation viable. City staff have set an April 3 deadline for a final proposal. More than 30 Ellis Harbor stakeholders, including the Ellis Harbor Association, nonprofits, Cedar Boat Club, and quarry tenants met Saturday to discuss a path forward. Their current proposal would involve the Cedar Boat Club entering into a management agreement with the city and making a substantial investment in security measures. Members are working to prepare a formal proposal. Harbor stakeholders don't favor hiring a private company to take over the quarry because of concerns about increased rental fees. Taylor said, Similarly sized private facilities charge 75% to 85% more than the city, but the city estimates a fee increase of 85 to 90% would be necessary to bring the facility within market rate and address security. The city will give due consideration to a final proposal and makes no guarantee another proposal will change the decision to close the quarry, Taylor said. At this time, we continue to move forward with plans to, quote, close the quarry by the end of the year. Whether or not the city accepts this proposal, staff do plan to designate two spaces near the front of the quarry for Ellis Harbor users to build and repair boats. Taylor said in 2020, the harbor generated $130,145 to cover $125,303 in expenses. That leaves roughly $5,000 to invest back in harbor improvements each year. Since 2016, he said the city has invested more than $774,000 in improvements, such as bank stabilization and sidewalk repairs. Taxpayers fill in that gap. It's unclear which of those expenses are related to the harbor versus the quarry. Taylor said the city is working on a cost rate model separating those costs. Dee McLeod, vice president of the Harbor Association Board, said the harbor is a gem of the city. She fears that without the quarry, the harbor will lose the houseboats. In the summer, residents host family-friendly activities, and before the COVID-19 pandemic, there was an annual fireworks show. The boat club is working to revive that. Our harbor is so unique, McLeod said. You can't find that in any other cities. Looking at the bigger picture, O'Donnell said, seeing what taxpayers were subsidizing for few residents spurred a larger conversation. At this point in time, with where we are with tight budgets, every dollar matters, O'Donnell said. It became more clear that it was time for the city to get out of the storage business. O'Donnell said the harbor has a great future in Cedar Rapids. As a council, we are really focused on our greenway and long-term we want to make sure that beautiful part of our city is accessible and usable by more people, O'Donnell said. Councilmember Ann Poe, who grew up in the Northwest Quadrant and spent time on Ellis Harbor, said she and her husband have stored their trailer in the quarry. While she understands quarry tenants' perspective, Poe said she doesn't support the amount of money the city would need to spend to secure it. She said there are more critical issues facing the city. As much as I love it, and we're not talking about getting rid of the harbor, I just can't see using taxpayer money to securing something for a few people, Poe said. Turning to the Iowa Today page, residents move out of Iowa City's Forest View Mobile Home Park. This story by Isabella Zaluska. 
Residents who were living in Forest View Mobile Home Court have all vacated the property and received relocation assistance from the City of Iowa City. The City used federal pandemic aid supplemented with local funds for a $1.3 million voluntary relocation program intended to help residents of the Mobile Home Park find safe, stable housing ahead of the park's closure. The City Council unanimously approved the program last April. The City was not legally obligated to provide such assistance, but Council members expressed the moral obligation to help. Residents living in the park park off North Dubuque Street and south of Interstate 80 were promised new homes as part of a deal the city made with a developer in June 2019. The plan was to develop 73 acres that included the mobile home park into a mix of housing and commercial space. The mobile home residents were promised first consideration for the manufactured and multifamily housing that was going to be built there. The proposed development did not move forward due to the COVID-19 pandemic, landowners last year told the Gazette. They said the ramshackle mobile park would not survive another winter. Households living in Forest View were, or excuse me, when the conditional zoning agreement was approved in 2019, were eligible for the aid. The city partnered with the Center for Worker Justice to help with translation and case management services for residents as they looked for new housing. Of the 80 eligible households, 54 were living in the mobile home park as of May 2022 and vacated ahead of the December 9 deadline, Grants Manager Cassandra Grip wrote in a city memo. The other 26 households had vacated before May. The city used just over $1 million in American Rescue Plan Act dollars and $232,470 in local funds to pay the eligible households $15,750 in relocation assistance, the memo said. About 57% of households relocated within the city and 28% relocated somewhere else in Johnson County. At least 7% moved out of Johnson County but stayed in Iowa, according to the memo. The remaining 8% either relocated outside the state or did not report their new location. Iowa City received $18.3 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds and has approved $6.4 million in projects to date. Also on the Iowa Today page, next Lindmar leader must focus on diversity. This story is by Grace King. The next leader of the Linmar Community School District should work to hire diverse educators and get out in front of problems before they boil over, according to new survey results. The report is intended to inform the school board of desired qualifications residents in the district hope to have in the next superintendent of schools. Current superintendent Shannon Bisgard is retiring at the end of the school year. The survey was conducted by search firm Grundmeyer Leader Services and was open from January 26 to February 12. There were 935 responses, the majority of those over 60% being parents or guardians of current students. Other people who responded included teachers, students, support staff, administrators, and community members. The district is taking applications for its next superintendent. Formal interviews with finalists are expected to be March 22nd. 
The next superintendent will lead the district through a five-year facility plan. Projects include construction of a new administration building, a larger performance venue, and an indoor athletic center. The district is not planning to pursue a bond issue or raise taxes to pay for any of the projects. Some of the strengths of Linmar schools include strong community support, a focus on student achievement, strong support for all extracurricular activities, a caring and dedicated staff, and strong administration, according to the survey results. Some of the challenges include staff retention, managing student population growth, communication with staff and families, and increasing diversity of staff to reflect the student body. Another challenge is getting out in front of problems with the community before they boil over, according to the survey results. The district has been under fire for adopting a transgender-affirming policy last year that is in place at many other school districts. The policy spells out inclusive practices for transgender students, including giving them access to restrooms, locker rooms, or changing areas that correspond with their chosen gender identity. Students in the seventh grade or above could request a gender support plan that calls for teachers and peers to address the student by a new name and new pronouns. The policy leaves it up to the students whether to notify their parents. Advice for the next leader of the Linmar District includes spending quality time at each school and increasing salaries for student support associates, according to the survey. The Linmar Community School District serves about 7,700 students and 1,100 employees across 12 school buildings. Bisgard is ending his contract with the district two years early. He has been an educator at Linmar Schools for 20 years. Separation terms include the district paying Bisgard $35,000 over two years with no benefits. The board approved a three-year contract with Bisgard in June that would expire June 30, 2025. And also on the Iowa Today page, this story by Emily Anderson, Cedar Rapids teen accused of firing stolen weapon. A Cedar Rapids teenager is accused of recklessly shooting a stolen gun at people Saturday, according to a criminal complaint, in the area of the fatal shooting of a 16-year-old boy that same day. On Monday, Antoine Stewart, 16, was charged in adult court with tracking and stolen weapons, use of a dangerous weapon in the commission of a crime, reckless use of a firearm, and being a minor armed with a dangerous weapon. A criminal complaint states that on Saturday he used a firearm stolen out of Johnson County to shoot multiple times at others, which caused damage to apartment buildings and vehicles at 1640 F Avenue Northwest. The complaint doesn't state whether he hit any people while shooting. Police said on Saturday they were investigating the shooting death of a boy in the same area. Monday, they provided his age, 16, but gave no other details of what led to his death. Officers found the boy suffering from gunshot wounds in the 1600 block of F Avenue Northwest shortly after 11.30 a.m. Saturday. He died at the scene. Police would not say whether Stewart's arrest was related to the incident. And this story by Tom Barton for the Des Moines Bureau is titled, Hearing on Removing Books Leads to Testy Exchange. A hearing Monday on Iowa School District's processes for reviewing 
and removing school library books and materials some parents and community members deem obscene devolved into testy exchanges between Democrats and Republicans. Iowa parents, many activists with the conservative group Moms for Liberty, told state lawmakers during a February 6 hearing that there should be more restrictions and parental permission required for school books they find obscene and divisive. Parents read passages containing profanity, descriptions and illustrations of sex, sexual abuse, and other content that they said were not suitable to be in a school library. Representative Brooke Bowden, Republican from Indianola and chair of the Government Oversight Committee, said parents who had gone through the book review process with their schools were asked to speak before the committee about their experience before hearing later from superintendents and school board presidents from the Carlisle, Carroll, Johnston, Urbandale, Waukee, and West Des Moines districts who deal with the review processes. This is not a subcommittee or a bill legislating whether these books should be in schools, Bowden said in a statement to the Gazette. If it was, all members of the public on all sides of the issue would be welcome to come and share their thoughts. This is a hearing meant to help us learn more about the book review process. The parents who are in support of these books in schools do not have any experience with the book review process to discuss before the committee. Republican lawmakers questioned school officials about their review processes. The Carlisle School District pulled the book Gender Queer off its library shelves after parents complained that the books had exposed their students to inappropriate contact, excuse me, content. However, a 10-person reconsideration committee in Carlisle unanimously recommended keeping the book in the high school library. The committee said the book's content provides a perspective that is relevant to today's teens and has an educational and social-emotional component for students interested or needing information on the topics in this book. Republican lawmakers, however, questioned the literary and educational value of books like Gender Queer that contain sexually graphic images. Bowden asked school officials in Carlisle, which chose not to pull the book from the high school library shelves, whether a student would be allowed to wear a t-shirt with images from the book depicting those acts. While a student would not be able to wear such a shirt, school officials said just one passage or set of images is not sufficient for a book to be considered obscene. Under state law, a book must contain obscene material when taken as a whole and lack serious literary, scientific, political, or artistic value. There is also an exception for the use of appropriate material for educational purposes in schools and public libraries. Quote, I don't see how a book could be removed using the standards you've discussed here. And so that's the concern I have and something I think we need to take a hard look at. It seems to me there are probably mountains of books that could have literary value and connect to students without having some of the graphic images like we see in Gender Queer and some of these other books, end quote, said Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison. Representative Sean Bagnowski, Democrat from Des Moines, remarked, there are graphic images in the Bible, but if we put them in comic book form, would not be appropriate on a t-shirt. And as a devout Catholic, I don't want the Bible banned from our public schools, Bagnowski said. The remark elicited a sharp rebuke from Representative Bobby Kaufman, Republican from Wilton, to which Bagnowski chuckled. 
You can laugh all you like, but the hubris that's oozing, in my opinion, from your statement is speaking for itself, Kaufman said. Those of us that are here today are here as concerned parents. And just to make light of that and continue to grin at people that have serious concerns about the materials, I think, speaks more about you than this committee. Earlier Monday, several parents and some students and educators spoke against the proposals in a special hearing held by Democrats. Rebecca Schurz, a junior at Carlisle High School, said that Gentry Guerre required, excuse me, provided an honest and open account by the author that has helped students in her school that are questioning their identity or want to better understand the fluid world of gender identity and the many different avenues and nuances of identifying as non-binary. In cases where school officials choose to retain the book, parents are afforded the option to request their child not be allowed to view or check out the material. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial today is from the New York Daily News. Mental health of teens must be addressed. The past few years have gotten us used to bad news from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and this week was more of the same. Yet this time, it had nothing to do with COVID-19. The agency's Youth Risk Behavior Survey found that about one in three high school girls had seriously considered suicide and detailed sharp upticks in sexual violence and overall mental health struggles. The CDC report makes explicit what many know intuitively, that schools are the first line of defense in nipping these cases in the bud, providing services and activities not just related to mental health, but to belonging, with students feeling like they can build community and have someone to go to if they're feeling unmoored or victimized. Unfortunately, things seem to be trending in the wrong direction, with teachers around the country leaving their jobs en masse after feeling unsupported at best and under siege at worst. Classrooms have always been political battlegrounds to some extent, but the fights have reached fever pitch as political opportunists ban books while ironically accusing others of censorship or go to great lengths to make LGBTQ students some of the most vulnerable to mental health struggles and harassment, feel unwelcome. As the schools retreat, the problems get worse, culminating in issues like despair and violence. With youth violence rising, New York school officials announced this week that school principals would begin having weekly meetings with NYPD precinct commanders in an effort to raise issues before violence occurs that we have to be intervening at the stage where violence is already manifesting is a collective failure to do right by our students. There are many daunting issues facing our culture, from climate change to growing authoritarianism in democratic societies. We are counting on our younger generations to step up and help guide us through, but that can't happen if huge percentages of girls and teenagers are starting off already disillusioned and hopeless. If we don't fix that, we don't fix anything. And the guest column today is from Rick Moyle. GOP actions chase away workers. Hey, Governor Kim Reynolds and most GOP officials, if you really want to address what you contend is a worker shortage in Iowa, let me offer a few suggestions as someone who unlike many of the decision makers, has done blue-collar work. 
Start by restoring public sector worker rights so your state, county, and city workers actually feel like you care about them and their families. This might even bring back quality teachers who fled the state after you gutted the workplace rights of our educators and many other public sector groups in 2017. I was recently told by a Republican supporter that Chapter 20, the Iowa Public Employee Relations Act, was gutted because management in the public sector is overcompensated. Is anyone else confused by that statement? Stripping Chapter 20 did not take away anything from management. The bill that gutted workers' rights only took away from the actual workers themselves. It just happens to turn out and has been shown by studies that if you treat your workers with dignity and respect and pay them a fair wage, they stick around longer. Stop stripping workers' rights away by watering down workers' compensation and unemployment benefits because your big business campaign donors ordered you to. Stop trying to strip child labor laws away because apparently we need to fill those packing house jobs with 15-year-olds so your fat cat donors can make more money. Stop destroying public education in the state and calling it school choice because your private donors would like to turn more of a profit off private schools funded by public tax dollars. Stop making stupid displays on a daily basis at the state house that makes our state a laughing stock on national television. Do you think that encourages skilled workers to move to Iowa and set roots? Your actions make it clear that once elected, you quickly forgot what working life was like. Your actions drive away a quality workforce, and it does not take the brilliance of an Albert Einstein to know this. Do you really want to make Iowa a place where people want to work and raise their families? Stop destroying every fragment of our state that makes that possible. The truth is we do not have a worker shortage. We have workers who now refuse to stay here or work here for peanuts in poor conditions while your campaign donors make billions off our backs. We are not blame-free in all of this because we as voters in the state keep electing you and after election day often don't pay attention to what you're really doing to working families in Iowa. You never follow through with what you say you will do for workers while on the campaign trail, but instead do just the opposite. I say to all blue-collar work voters, regardless of party affiliation, quote, what do we have to lose by voting those officials out of office who do nothing for us, end quote. I do not care if it is a Republican, Democrat, or Independent who is screwing workers. Send them packing, and maybe, in some miraculous display of poetic justice, they will have to work under the conditions caused by the laws they so profoundly passed. And that's signed today by Rick Moyle, who is Executive Director of the Hawkeye Area Labor Council, AFL-CIO. One community letter today is titled, Cut U.S. Military Budget to Reduce Spending. Some Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives are threatening to vote against an increase to the federal debt ceiling unless there are substantial spending cuts. My modest suggestion for a spending cut is to reduce U.S. military spending for fiscal 2023 to the level requested by the Pentagon and the Biden administration, hopefully further. Their request for military spending was $813 billion. The House and the Senate increased the request by $45 billion and then approved $858 billion in military spending. The vote in the House 
was 350 to 80. Why spend billions of dollars on things that are not needed? And just a reminder, there was never, there has never been a successful audit of the Department of Defense. If we use societal need as the justification for federal programs, it may be worthwhile to compare that $45 billion of unnecessary federal spending to the 2023 budget for the National Oceanic and Administrative Administration, or NOAA. Its entire 2023 budget is $6.9 billion, just 15% of the unrequested increase to the military budget. And what does NOAA do? It is on the front lines of monitoring and researching climate change, housing within it the taken-for-granted National Weather Service, reducing the military budget from $858 billion to $813 billion should be a no-brainer. And next year, a deeper comparative analysis of the efficiency of the Pentagon and NOAA in defending the national security of the U.S. should be on the agenda. That's signed by Ed Flaherty from Iowa City. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Tuesday, February 21st, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind. And now we take a look at today's obituaries, first beginning with the short notices from Cedar Rapids, Michael Prouty, age 71, died Monday, February 20, Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service. Also in Cedar Rapids, Cortez Bernard West Sr., 54, died Saturday, February 18th, Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center, Cedar Rapids. In Manchester, Joshua Holtz, age 48, died Friday, February 17th, Bonin Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. From Marion, Aaron Warden, age 63, died Monday, February 20, Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. And in Morley, Robert Hora, age 88, died Sunday, February 19, Getch Funeral Home and Amosa. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Arlington, Carol J. Thode, 79, died February 18 at Friendship Village in Waterloo. Funeral services for Carol will be at 3 p.m. Friday, February 24, at St. John Lutheran Church in Arlington. Visitation is noon to 3 p.m. Friday at the church. Condolences may be directed to 2649 220th Avenue in Delhi, Iowa, 52223. Jameson Schmidt's Funeral Home in Arlington is assisting the family. You can view an online obituary at jamisonschmidtsfuneralhome.com. From Tipton, Carolyn K. Keller Cole, age 81, died in her sleep on Saturday, February 18, at Cedar Manor Nursing Home in Tipton, where she resided for the past two years. All services will be held on Wednesday, February 22nd at Fry Funeral Home in Tipton. Visitation will be from 10 to 11 a.m. and funeral services at 11, immediately followed by a light luncheon and cremation rites being accorded. Online condolences can be shared at fryfuneralhome.com. Carolyn was a past supporter of Friends of the Animals in Tipton, where a memorial fund has been established. 
In Manchester, Dwayne Willis Sherman, age 90, passed away Sunday, February 19th at Marietta's Place in Manchester. Online condolences can be said, sent to leonard-mullerfh.com. Funeral services are at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, February 23rd at First Evangelical Lutheran in Manchester with Reverend Tony Eady officiating. Visitation is 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, February 22nd at Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Manchester. Friends may also call Thursday at First Evangelical Lutheran Church from 9.30 a.m. until the time of service. Interment with military honors will be at Edgewood Cemetery in Edgewood. From Monticello, Thomas Conrad Gutzeit died February 18th at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital with family by his side. Please join us for a celebration in memory of Tom on Friday, February 24th at the Jones County Extension Facility, 800 North Maple Street in Monticello from 3 to 5.30 p.m. Several gatherings have been held there over the years, and it holds a special place in our hearts. Please donate to the charity of your choice in lieu of flowers. Getch Funeral Home Monticello has taken <clears throat> Tom and his family into their care. Tom wishes to be interned at South Mineral Cemetery in the plot next to Wilma Gutzite at a later date. Tom was very proud of his ger German heritage, so in closing... Auf Wiedersehen, until we meet again. In Monticello, David Norton, age 89, died Sunday, February 19th at his home. A celebration of life will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. Saturday, February 25th at the Eagles Club in Monticello. There will be a private burial at a later date. Getch Funeral Home Monticello has taken David and his family into their care. By visiting GetchOnline.com, you may share your thought, memory, and condolence. From Westcliff, Colorado, Glenn James Martin died peacefully at his home February 9. Glenn retired from Collins Radio in 2000 after 41 years of employment. There are no service arrangements listed in the notice. From Cedar Rapids, Leonard Rudolph Brezina, 89, Passed away Saturday, February 18th at Compass Memorial Hospital in Marengo. Visitation will be from 11, excuse me, from 10 to 11 a.m. Friday, February 24 at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. Military rites will be conducted. Celebration of life will be at 11 a.m. Friday, February 24 at Brosh Chapel. Burial will be at Rett's Cemetery, west of Atkins. From Marion, Sheila Yvonne Sorensen died peacefully in her home February 18. Celebration of life will be held from 10 a.m. to noon, Friday, March 3, at Antioch Christian Church, 433 Cross Road in Marion. Cremation will be through Cedar Memorial and Iowa Cremation. Condolences can be left for the family at cedarmemorial.com and iowacremation.com. The family requests memorials in Sheila's name be to Antioch Christian Church in support of its rooted ministry. And the final obituary today from Manchester, Charles Francis, known as Charlie Gaffney, 93, passed away Saturday, February 18th 
at the Good Neighbor Home in Manchester. Online condolences can be sent to leonardmullerfuneralhome.com. Massive Christian burial will be 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 25, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Manchester, the Reverend Gabriel Anderson officiating. Visitation is from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday, February 24, at Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Manchester. There will be a 3.30 p.m. public Knights of Columbus Rosary service. Friends may also call from 9 a.m. until 10.15 a.m. prior to the service at the church on Saturday. Interment with military rites will be at St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery in Manchester. Turning now to the sports page. In this high school basketball story by Jeff Johnson, Caton's biggest win. Albernet. The conversation with Albernet boys basketball coach Jeff Christofferson began with the obvious. It wasn't easy for the Class 2A ninth-ranked Pirates to obtain a 62-58 district semifinal win last Friday over Northeast, but they obtained that win to advance to a district final tonight against Monticello. It's a bottom-line deal in the postseason. The game of basketball is not scored like gymnastics or anything like that, Christofferson said. It doesn't have to be pretty. You've just got to get the job done, especially this time of year, because everybody who's left is good. Nobody's hiding. Eventually, the coach was asked about Jordan Caton. The junior guard had a game-high 25 points, nailing some clutch free throws down the stretch to help his team survive. The five foot nine junior point guard makes the Albernet student section and others go whoa at times with a sick change of direction on his dribble, his ultra quickness and other skills. There is obvious talent there. I think he has a high ceiling, Christofferson said. I think Summer will tell how far he can go. I know he wants to play at the next level and he'll do the right things to be able to do that. His parents are very supportive. More than you might ever know. Tom and Ashley Caton of Alburnett adopted Jordan, his sister, and two brothers out of foster care in October 2016. Nina is a freshman in high school, William a 7th grader, and Rico a 5th grader. I was born in California and moved to Iowa when I was like 6 or 7, Jordan Caton said. I got adopted by my family here in Alburnett when I was in about 5th grade. My brothers and sister were all in foster care at the time with different families. We ended up in this family for about a year, and then they ended up adopting all of us. We couldn't have kids, but we decided for foster care to just kind of make a difference, Ashley Caton said. We didn't know if we'd be able to adopt kids or not, but we knew that kids needed to be in our lives somehow. Jordan and his brothers and sister came to us, and we couldn't say no. They are such good kids. Jordan Caton said he and his siblings ended up in Iowa because they had a biological grandmother who lived here. He was asked about life before meeting Tom and Ashley. It was hard, he said. I grew up at a really young age, had to mature. I took care of my siblings because my mom wasn't around. I definitely had to grow up at a young age. Life has taught me a lot. Which perhaps is why he seems to show very little emotion when he's on the basketball court. He just plays. Growing up, I didn't have the best experience with friends, school, or sports. Hard times, he said. Getting with this family is the best thing that could have happened to me. I found a love for basketball. 
He just has a natural gift to play, Ashley said. A natural gift that would have been wasted had Tom and Ashley Caton not provided him a stable environment, a home. We're here to give the kids an opportunity to do what they want to do, Tom Caton said. If you think about how things could be, given stories like ours, we honestly couldn't be more proud of the kids. How great of kids they are. How humble of kids they are. Jordan's a great kid. He works hard, stays out of trouble, and we couldn't be more proud of him and his siblings. I'm so grateful. They saved our lives, Jordan Caton said. The judge, he could have said no, and we'd all be in different homes right now. It's been a journey, and how far we've come, everything has worked out. We're all happy. We're one big family now. And on the girls' basketball side, Western Dubuque has another upset in mind, this story by Jeff Linder. Tom Lilly found himself sitting next to Amy Ostwinkle at an all-conference meeting recently. It's a little ironic, Lilly said. She said, maybe we'll see you in the regional finals. He could have laughed it off, given Western Dubuque's record, but he didn't. And here we are. The reigning Class 4A state champion, 6th-ranked Cedar Rapids Xavier, hosts Western Dubuque in a Class 4A girls basketball regional final. Tip-off is at 7 p.m. today, and yes, the scoreboard is running again at Ron Thailand Gymnasium after a glitch Saturday forced a site change. Xavier was scheduled to host Marion, but the scoreboard wouldn't turn on, and the game was moved to Marion. The Saints won 54-47. to they spent all Sunday working on it, and it was up and running Monday morning, Lily said. Takes a special tower to run it, and they'll have a backup ready. The Saints have won four straight games after a four-game skid, and Lily said they are mentally in a good place right now. They can't afford to look past Western Dubuque. The Bobcats have taken down Maquoketa and number 9 DeWitt Central in succession. In the latter, they built a shocking 21-point halftime lead and coasted home. It's not as if the Bobcats had been punching a punching bag all season. Ten of their losses were by 10 points or less, including a 60-54 to setback against Xavier on December 6th. The conference is tough, and we've always competed, Ostwinkle said. The Maquoketa game was a catalyst for our confidence, and we came out so strong against DeWitt. The Western Dubuque-Xavier game is one of the six regional finals, three in 4A and three in 5A, involving area teams. Also in 4A, number 5, Decora hosts number 13, Mason City, and number 7, Clear Creek Amana, welcomes number 10, North Scott. Three area 5A teams face stiff road challenges in central Iowa. Number 10, Iowa City Liberty, is at number 7, Southeast Polk. Number 11, Linmar, visits number 6, Ankeny Centennial. And number 12, Iowa City West, plays at number 4, West Des Moines Dowling. Linmar has proved itself dangerous when it's at its best. The Lions have some impressive wins, including one against number 3, Waterloo West. I feel we're battle-tested, and now it's a matter of being able to execute, Lions coach Chad Tompkins said. And back to boys basketball, this Jeff Johnson story. Cedar Rapids Kennedy's boys basketball team finished the regular season undefeated for the first time in school history last week. The Cougars went through the Mississippi Valley Conference without a loss for the first time. Monday, they ended the regular season top-ranked in Class 4A. 
Kennedy is number one in the final High School Athletic Association poll. The top seven in the class remained exactly the same as last week. Kennedy, followed by Waukee, Waukee Northwest, West Des Moines Valley, Indianola, Norwalk, and Dubuque Sr. Ankeny Centennial lost last week and fell from eighth to number 10, with Cedar Falls and Sioux City East inching up a spot to eighth and ninth. Bondurant Farrar finished on top in Class 3A, followed by Clear Lake and MOC Floyd Valley. Cedar Rapids Xavier and Marion remained fourth and fifth, despite each losing a game last week. In fact, last week saw the last seven of the top ten lose, allowing Williamsburg to join the rankings at ninth. The Raiders beat Marion last week. The postseason for all of Class 3A began last night, as well as for 32 of the 48 teams in 4A. This week's entire poll can be found on a separate page. And in sports of area interest today, it is girls basketball Class 4A and 5A regional finals. In high school bowling, it's the state championships at Maple Lanes in Waterloo. Turning now to the Business 380 page, Tiny Techies to offer teacher training. Early childhood teachers can apply to be part of training at the new BOCO Tiny Techies program. Those accepted will be trained in teaching technology to youngsters and receive more than $700 in materials to use in their classrooms at no cost. The training, which comes with a stipend and professional credit, is made possible because the Tiny Techies program was selected for a scale-up grant in the 2023-24 school year by the Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council. Educators can apply for the training. The deadline for applications is February 28, and more information is available at nuboco education. The Tiny Techies program is designed to offer young students opportunities to develop computational thinking and problem-solving skills. Here are some things to do today. It's Engineering Week. Discover what it means to be an engineer. In honor of National Engineers Week, we will explore engineering concepts and career paths. Children will have opportunities to meet engineers from the community, complete STEM-related activities, and imagine a future where they're solving real-world problems. That's at the Iowa Children's Museum at the Coral Ridge Mall from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and the cost is $10. One night stand with the CRMA. This talk on Zoom will be led by museum staff, local artists, or art scholars. By focusing each 20-minute program on one artwork, the audience engages in a conversation about the artist and how the selected work of art relates to the larger body of work by that artist. You can... Uh, Participate in that at 7 p.m. online with the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art. And the cost is free. In the music category, Key Change Series number 5, this performance is presented by Orchestra Iowa and the University of Iowa. That will take place at the Opus Concert Cafe, 119 3rd Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. From 6 to 7.30 p.m., there is a suggested $10 donation. And Lynn County Master Gardener Megan McDougall will talk about what heirlooms are and whether they're hard to grow. McDougall will talk about some of the best vegetables and flowers to start with. 
That will be at the Hiawatha Public Library from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. and that is free. And in the fitness category, slow flow yoga class flows through sun salutations, standing poses, seating poses, and ends with a guided meditation. That will take place at the Veterans Memorial Building Ballroom in Cedar Rapids from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. and that cost is $10. And in some Eastern Iowa briefs, Prairie Lights Books will host a celebration of the publication of beloved Iowa Writers Workshop professor James Allen McPherson's, McPherson's On Becoming an American Writer. That's at 6 p.m. Friday at Prairie Lights. The event is free. McPherson's daughter, Rachel, will be joined for readings and conversation by Writers Workshop faculty James Galvin and Jamel Brinkley, nonfiction writing professor emeritus Patricia Foster, and the director of the Writers Workshop, Lan Samantha Chang. And in Cedar Rapids, Community Music Day returns to the Cedar Rapids Public Library. That's from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. March 4. This all-day event will feature activities, performances, and events throughout the day featuring local artists. This event was really popular before the pandemic and we're thrilled to finally bring it back, says Jessica Altafish, Harmony School Executive Director. Our theme this year is unity. We want to create a space for everyone in our community to relax, enjoy being together, and find our common good in our love of all kinds of music. Cellist and vocalist Jordan Hamilton headlines the event with a Q&A session followed by a concert. Hamilton is cellist with Last Gasp Collective and the Southwest Michigan Symphony. Activities and performances will be offered by Orchestra Iowa School, Coe College, Kirkwood Community College, and Eastern Iowa Arts Academy and will include craft activities, infant and child music classes, story time, a music writing tech workshop, rock, jazz, and classical performances. And also on the community page, this story by Isabella Zaluska, Johnson County has been designated a heart-safe community as local partners continue informing residents how to effectively intervene if they witness someone in sudden cardiac arrest. Johnson County is the fourth community in the country to receive this designation, said Fiona Johnson, the county's ambulance service director. The formal announcement was made during an event last week. Johnson said the prestigious designation comes from the Citizens CPR Foundation, a national program that helps communities improve outcomes of sudden cardiac arrest. Other communities include Richland, Washington, West Point, New York, and La Crosse, Wisconsin, according to Johnson. Palm Beach Gardens, Florida became the fifth community after Johnson County. More than 356,000 people suffer a cardiac arrest each year in the United States. The national survival rate is less than 10%, but research shows that with timely intervention, the survival rate increases to 60%. Johnson County Ambulance Service reported 103 sudden cardiac arrest calls last year, which was an increase of 30% when compared to 2021, according to the campaign's annual report. 
Johnson County Ambulance and the Iowa Fire Department will be holding classes throughout the year for community members wanting to learn how to administer CPR. A schedule of classes can be found online on the county's website at johnsoncountyiowa.gov slash Department of Ambulance. Finishing up with the weather story today by meteorologist Hannah Messier. While winter weather can be frustrating, the precipitation will help alleviate the current dry and drought conditions across the state of Iowa. In eastern Iowa, many areas north of Interstate 80 are classified as abnormally dry by the U.S. Drought Monitor released Thursday. Some areas south of Interstate 80 in eastern Iowa are under moderate to severe drought. However, northwest Iowa faces extreme drought in counties including, but not limited to, Buena Vista, Pocahontas, and part of Cherokee. For western Iowa, far western Iowa is even worse with exceptional drought in western Woodbury and Monona counties. Looking at the weather today, mostly cloudy, with a high expected of 35 and a low of 28. A wintry mix comes into the forecast Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday with highs in those mid-30s to mid-20s and lows in the 20s. Thursday night, though, looking for a low of 6. The normal for today is 35 for a high and 18 for a low. We set records of 68 degrees for a high in 1930, 10 below zero in 1963. Sunset tonight is at 5.47 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 6.53 a.m. That gives us 10 hours and 53 minutes of daylight. We're in the new moon phase with moon rise at 8.23 a.m. and moon set at 8.58 p.m. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. It's Tuesday, February 21. I'm your reader, Kathleen. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening, and have a great, safe day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.